0: I'm Jared Kimber, and welcome to Wagon Wheel. Uh, this is the cricket podcast where we answer questions from you, the person who's asked the questions, unless you haven't asked a question. Uh, the best way to do it, of course, is via Patreon. You can subscribe there and... Uh, oh went to earlier uh you can subscribe over there um at first class level and above and ask your questions every week or you can hang out on the live on youtube and if you do a super chat i'll certainly add those in but also anything else uh that takes my fancy i'll certainly have a look at as well so big thanks to everyone um again for uh showing up in uh the live but let's start with the patreon people and we've got Vikas who says, what happened with Gary Balance? He made his comeback earlier this year for Zimbabwe, scored two, a century or two, and then retired suddenly. Was it because he didn't? He wasn't liked in the dressing room? Look, there's a lot of rumors, and I think by now we were kind of expecting them to be more confirmed. Uh, I think there were some things about the racism trial in Yorkshire that were also causing issues. Um, I mean, it was a weird fit, right? A guy who had essentially left English cricket for racism going to Zimbabwe, uh, <laughs> you know, uh with with their history so um i would assume that it was something towards those lines but there's also some other issues with his um uh some private circumstances i suppose as i said they are rumours so i don't want to go into them too much but that you know he wasn't doing particularly well um so i don't i as far as i'm aware it was nothing to do with like the, the players didn't um accept him when he came in or anything like that i'm sure there were issues um, based on what had happened with Yorkshire and everything else, but I don't think that was uh, the overall reason. I think it was more to do uh, with some personal stuff that he had, and perhaps the the history. It, I think it's to be fair to him, it's probably been a big couple of years, right? And he made a i want to say a rash move because I think that's the wrong way of putting it, but he made a big move, um, you know, to go back home to Zimbabwe, and maybe it didn't go the way that he was hoping. Bloody says, I listened to the final words calling the shots documentary recently. Why was the ECB so hostile to Test Match Sofa? Uh, the stump mic feed was not used, so don't understand why they cared so much. Uh, so for those who don't understand, Test Match Sofa was one of the earliest sort of online uh, sports commentary services, which it's now Guerrilla Cricket, essentially, with, you know, some of the cast change, but uh, very, you know um, so the, some of the original people from Test Match Sofa are involved with Guerrilla Cricket uh, at the moment. Um, and so it, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a loophole when it comes to commentating on sports of, um, like radio companies obviously spend a lot of money on the rights, but essentially what they're paying for is access to the ground and the ability to get the sounds of the ground. There isn't really a law that in, in many countries. That forbids you from actually broadcasting at home. And when the technology caught up, people like Test Match Sofa um, and white line Wireless, as well, in in, in Australia, in cricket. There was one in, in India as well that did the IPL for a little while. Um, kind of like watch alongs, really, but uh, Test Match Sofa was very much a ball by ball commentary service. And that was one of the issues. So the ECB are trying to sell their rights, um, and there's someone else doing it for free. That was what the issue was. Um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, all these years later, Guerrilla Cricket is not like a massive endeavour, right? Like it hasn't taken market from the BBC. Um, I'm sure it has uh, at times, you know, there are some people who probably just prefer it um, or test match over when it originally existed. But I think the thought process back then was um, that these people were doing it for free and cricket wasn't making any money. But if we're being honest, the BBC were obviously the most upset. There were, you know, a few key people at the ECB very upset about it. Um, but it was legal. And that was the kind of the issue. But there are other ways that they could blackball. Uh, you know, people who worked on Test Match Sofa were uh, at danger of not getting accreditation. And, you know, for, for someone like me who was a journalist, that was quite a big deal at the time when I was doing Test Match Sofa. Um, and, you know, just other things too. Like, you know, there were sponsors that wanted to sponsor, um, but then they were like, well, wait a minute, why would we? Um, uh, uh, it, it, they couldn't, they were being encouraged not to sponsor a um, pirate cricket commentary thing uh but yeah there's there a lot of big egos there's there's a lot of nonsense about cricket radio rights i still don't understand why cricket radio rights are exclusive i don't think that helps cricket at all and i've been on the record of that for about 12 15 years now um uh, so Yeah, it it was a really, really interesting thing. Uh, The the, the funny thing is now we do have watch-alongs. The only board I know these days who was upset about it was the BCCI. They were quite upset about it. And I think there might be a law in India that makes it a little bit trickier than other places um, from my memory. But around the world, you could pretty much set one up yourselves if you wanted to. It's really just up to you to make it good and get people across. And that's, to be fair, that was the, the secret that Test Match far had is that they really thought about what Test Match Special was and they went for something different and then they advertised directly to expats who couldn't listen to the BBC's broadcast outside of the UK, which again, just very smart little things. And Gorilla Cricket, again, very big with expats. Uh, Ellie says, has Australian crowds generally gotten friendlier? You used to hear a lot from back in the days the Australian public would jeer at the opponents quite a lot. Well, Muhammad Siraj might disagree. Um, look, it's a lot different than when I grew up, for sure. The 90s were pretty toxic um, at the MCG. I would even say when I started my career, the Gabba was still quite full on at times. Um, don't know if the others are as bad anyway. Um, I think those were probably, you know, in modern days, the two most uh, famous ones. But Australia's Australia changed as a society now as well, like, you know, um, uh, those, I think I went to the the game with the record number of ejections um, uh, from, um, at the MCG. It's just, it was a horrible, horrible thing. Just like, you know, I've talked about it before, you know, the people throwing cups of piss up in the air and um, every time a woman uh, walked, there would be, she'd be sexually harassed and, um, you know, homophobic um, chance at players and, you know, all sorts of things like that. Like it, what? Well, and I'm just talking about the MCG, you know, but Ian O'Brien talked about being called, um, homophobic slurs at the Gabba and Cricket Australia didn't believe him. Uh, you just wouldn't, they just wouldn't get away with that now. Right. Like it, it, you know, um, things have changed so much in such a, uh, you know, a, a quick amount of time. Um, and you know, as sports become more professional, it's just harder to allow for those sorts of things to happen. Premier League football is another perfect example of something that had to ship up, right? Um, you know, these things, you, you can't keep just letting um, these things uh, go untreated, especially now that athletes have a voice. You know, Cricket Australia was quite embarrassed by the Ian O'Brien. Ian O'Brien had like a personal blog. They were quite embarrassed by that. Um, and, and imagine what would have happened even two or three years later when he was on Twitter and, and, and everything else. Like, it would have been an even bigger deal by that point. So, oh, um, well, as Twitter got bigger, anyway. So, yeah, it's it's a, uh, a very much a, a, you know just a normal um, thing that we'll see, and you know, not all not all sporting crowds do do that, and sometimes the opposite is um, encouraged. But I've always thought that like, eventually, you get to a point where financially people don't want to be associated with that kind of brand, right? And that's essentially what sports come down to. Rudra says, over the past 10 years, who are the best defensive test pacers? I would say Anderson, Ishan, Abbas, and Philander would be up there. Uh, That's a very, very good question. I've never, I haven't really thought about that. I I mean, for me, taking wickets is the most important thing, obviously, uh, that I'm looking for, especially in a... um, uh, especially especially in a situation uh like test cricket that, not that there aren't defensive times that you should that you should bowl or anything like that but just as a general rule like i don't really care uh, how defensive you are or how attacking you are um as long as you're taking wickets there's sometimes there are team tactics i, I always remember steve finn um I, I had no problem with him as a bowler, but. didn't really suit the way that the rest of the england team was bowling and we saw mitchell johnson have issues with the australian team at times but generally you know just get wickets you know that's a that's a really cool thing um, to have to have happen um these wickets you should always go for wickets that sort of thing but let's have a look last 10 years uh let us have a look at i don't know a minimum of 100 wickets for fun and see what i can come up with where are we economy rates so Jimmy Anderson has the lowest economy, 2.45. Jason Holder, 2.57. Uh, you mentioned Vernon Philander. He's at 2.58. Boomer is surprisingly uh, high, at 2.71. I know he's not easy to score off, but um, he does kind of attack a little bit more. Uh, Ishan Sharma's up closer to three. I forget the other one that you mentioned now. Sorry. Rudra, who's the other one you mentioned? Oh, Abbas. Uh, Abbas might not have. Enough wickets for the, the metric that I had to looked at. Yeah, generally it's just gonna be accurate bowlers. And I think you can see Holder, Bumrah, um, Hazelwood all up there as well. So and broad. So there's a few taller bowlers as well. Those are all the guys that are under um what, what are those guys all under? Two point nine, let's say, economy. Uh, but Anderson, uh, and Philander, uh, are still very much there. So accuracy and or height are the two things that are ha- hardest. Mitchell Stark is the most expensive 3.41 and channel Shannon Gabriel's less expensive than Mitchell Stark. I wouldn't have had that on, on my thing. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, a big difference at the other end where you have Rabada and Shammy and Mark Wood and those sorts of guys. Uh, Neil Wagner is another one who's a little bit more expensive. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think that follows. A- Anderson gets a little bit of a boost too, just because he probably bowled on slightly better wickets. Although, to be fair, Holder bowled on some, bad w- uh, some, some wickets that was hard to score on. Uh, Saranga Lakmal is up there too. Uh, so yeah, I think those are the ones that make sense. But it's not something I factor in all that much. Unless, it's kind of if you're a fourth bowler or a fifth bowler, that's when I start to look at economy. You know, let's say you might average 38, but you might be going at, you know, two and a half runs and over. Then you just decide, like, well, I'll, yeah, they're not getting wickets, but you're not getting away from them. Um, and they're, they're helping build pressure just in a different way. Uh, Richard said, What made Jesse Shah so good in England, but so bad in Australia? How much of that I would assume is just when he played in those different places? Is that a, a potential? Um, but, I mean, in England, he averaged. I wanted to say 40, 38. That's not too bad, my memory. Um, and he averaged 89 in Australia. Uh, he played in Australia over two periods. He played in England. I, I played in England over two periods as well. Um, I wonder what the breakdown of him in England is over the two different places. Um, let's have a look here. So he but he takes a lot of wickets in in 2016 so that was the tournament and then in 2020 i got eight wickets at, at old trafford as well um I, I just quickly have a look at the australian ones as well so he played two tests sorry three tests 2016 2017 then another test in 2019 uh sorry two tests in 2019 in australia he just never took any wickets did he uh took four wicket haul at brisbane that was a day nighter, I think. I think I was at that game. Um, was that a day nighter? No. Okay. No, that was 2019. That was that was later. Um, what makes him different? Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've, he's a he's a baffling bowler, Yassir Shah, because um, his record overall so. I was going through this the other day. So he averages 26 his first year, 23, 38, 28, 23. Then he averages 101, 35, 37, and 39. Um, that that 101 is probably mostly in Australia. Um, but he did play in Australia while well. He was a fairly good bowler as well. I can't think of anything technically why he shouldn't be able to bowl well. Um, I, th- I actually thought technically uh, – sorry, in Australia I should say. I always thought technically he's – he held up. My guess is he probably didn't put a lot of overspin on the ball, though. Would, would be he, he didn't, I didn't think he put a massive amount of revs on the ball, whether it be side spin or overspin. And I think in Australia, you probably need to you know, rely a little bit more on bouts um, and the overspin and bringing in other factors. So that would be my guess. Why it worked in England? I mean, my memory of him bowling in England is that he very much attacked the stumps. Um, and went about it in in that kind of way. I also remember one really bad spell that I want to say in 2016 in Australia, where he was used to bowl leg spin down, outside leg stump. To I think it was against Wrench or something or Warner. It's absolutely pathetic, um, and really, really um, stuffed him over. Um, so, so yeah, I think uh, I, my my guess is that it would be a um, overspin issue. But I haven't seen him bowl in a little while. I'd have to go back and, and have another look. GD says, how would you compare Dennis Lilly and Richard Hadley? Besides stats, Lilly had Tom as a partner for a lot of his career but had to fight injuries. Hadley was probably slower uh, definitely in the beginning. Well, Hadley was really quick in the beginning, uh, GD. I don't know if you know that. And he reshaped his bowling based on Lilly, right? Like, um, so in some ways we wouldn't have had Hadley if it wasn't for Lily. And I think, I can't remember who it was, but it was one of the, New Zealand uh, senior players who basically took him aside and said, "Look, you're never going to be fast enough to blast through the Australians consistently. Um, you need to find other skills." And you know, I, and at that stage, Hadley sort of, you know, looked into Lily and, and followed that that met uh, that that style. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I think that was fair. I think if you did a really advanced search, you would have to say that Hadley probably bowled on much better wickets um I, I i don't think you can really compare the two you know australian wickets are a bit more of a slog whereas hadley could probably come on at any time and, and you know get, get some kind of assistance in new zealand especially in that era um if you I, I haven't done the full breakdown of hadley's career but i have had a look at new zealand batters there's no doubt that their wickets were hard to score on at that point so that's a huge advantage uh to hadley hadley played um in asia and had a, a, a decent record um, in Asia. I'm trying to, uh, where are we? In Asia, 13 test matches, average of 21.58, right? And that that split with six matches in India, an average of 22. Um, three tests in Pakistan where he averaged 44 and four tests in Sri Lanka where he averaged 12. That was very early Sri Lanka. So if you take that out, he's still averaging what? high 20s maybe low 30s um across india and pakistan whereas lily doesn't really play in asia right like it's you know it at that period of uh, australian cricket he didn't play i think there was a tour where he might have been off of world series cricket as well if i remember um so we don't really know how well lily would have gone all we know is that in pakistan he averaged 101 in three tests um which is not Particularly good, but that's all we have. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, oh, sorry, no, wait. He went. To, he played one test in Sri Lanka, didn't he? He averaged thirty-five in that one test. So again, it's only four tests. We, I'd have to go back and have a look at the wickets and everything else. My guess is that the the ability of lily to combine with pace with everything else he did would have made him a better bowler than Hadley, but I think. When Hadley actually copied Lily, he became a better version um, of that kind of bowler than even Lily was. But I don't think there's as much in it as perhaps their overall bowling averages suggest, just based on what I said before of, of the pitches. So Hadley averages 22.29, um, and Lily averages 23.92. That's probably a little bit closer, up. But I think that, you know, Hadley had what a 17 year pro career. And Lily had a 13-year pro career, so if you you factor in that that extra time, uh, I'm, you know, if you want to put the batting in as well, I don't I don't think he was a particularly good batter Hadley. Uh, at least one of his hundreds was gifted to him because the West Indies were doing a dirty protest on the ground. Um, uh, but but he could certainly hold a bat and was a better bat than than Lily was. Uh, but yeah, I just think he pro- Hadley probably still marginally, um, go, um uh is better but i would have to have a look at the wickets um and you'd almost have to have a look at the how well lily did against overseas players in australia compared to how well um hadley did against overseas players in new zealand um i mean they're all overseas but you know what i mean you'd have to factor out the home records because australian batters warp the home records a little bit and to just to see what you know what kind of records these players had outside of themselves, outside of those bowlers um, if you take that out. So one thing that was interesting is that Hadley, for all of his success, averaged 25 in England. Um, and yet he, you know, as we know, in, f- in counter cricket was an absolute star. Um, and Lily averaged 20 in England. That kind of goes against the kinds of bowlers we, we think they both were. Um, and if you want to go up against the best batting lineup that, uh, that those two would have gone up against would have been the West Indies uh hadley averages 22 and Lily's up at 27 so struggled a little bit more with the west indies i don't think there's a i don't think there's a massive amount um in it but the truth is that hadley doesn't exist without lily but that doesn't mean that hadley doesn't become a better bowler than lily so i mean nathan says i started watching cricket in 1998 do you concur with my lineup of the greatest underachievers uh since that time nathan Hastel, michael vaughan i think michael Vaughan was an overachiever uh, Sean Marsh, hmm, sure. K.L. Rahul, maybe in Test Cricket. This is Test Cricket, is it? Um, I think perhaps in Test Cricket. Uh Dullar, hmm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about Mammal I... If I'm Patan. No, I think they got the most out of him. You've got Keith Miller here, but it's Keith Miller wrong. Is there another Keith Miller I'm missing? Is it Milia? And I'm reading it wrong. Um, I'm not sure that uh, Matthew Hogard. I think the thing with Matthew Hogard is, and I've said this before, at a certain point in his when he retired, he had a very similar record to Jimmy Anderson did uh, at a very similar age, um, and wasn't quite didn't quite look after his body or didn't have the same kind of body as Jimmy Anderson, so couldn't bowl on forever um, and maybe cash in. Um, I think Hogard pretty much got the most out of his potential when he played. Kema roach Kema roach would have been a great but was in a car accident I, I think and he's gone on to have a fantastic career anyway so um you know muhammad asif i mean definitely muhammad uh, asif just because of everything and then you've got substitutes of mihaela jay warden imran nazir and simon jones imran nazir i would definitely have on that list mihaela jay Wardner i mean wasn't a good player of pace we'll see um and if, if he gets himself to a slightly above average player of pace, he's probably quite easily in the top 30 batters of all time. Um, but he also makes like 9,000 runs in Asia and only makes like two or 3,000 outside of Asia. It's not just that he didn't, he didn't get as many opportunities as some other players. Simon Jones was injury. Um, Nathan Astle is really interesting. I'm not sure Nathan Astle was any better than what we saw him um, to be. Uh, I'm trying to think of other players who, you know, Adrian Barath is probably one. Um, uh, what's his name? The Indian, uh, uh, uh Vinod Campbell is certainly another one. I mean, uh, you know, Shane Watson certainly should have been a better player all round than he probably was. Um, you probably say the same with Freddie Flintoff, uh, despite his impact. Um, uh, trying to think of some other players um ian bishop obviously again injury related there uh i'm trying to think of others from the 2000s yeah um i mean those are the ones that instantly come to mind Dilsha, maybe another one who when he finally worked it out was absolutely fantastic i'm not sure all right uh let's take a quick break and after a break i'll come back and finish the patreon questions i'm jared kimber and this is the wagon wheel Thanks to the kind folks at FlexiSpot for looking after my office and my butt by sending me their E7 Pro Desk that save your favorite desk heights at a touch of a button. You don't have to crank anything. This thing just finds the height that you like and you can work. And their BS12 Pro Chair that supports my posterior while I'm recording, well, this ad and all my shows. If you need great desks, especially ones that change heights or the best quality chairs, head on over to FlexiSpot. Do you make content but don't want to listen to yourself talk? Well, I get that. Memento FM's AI does all the listening for you. It picks out the highlights and it makes you sound far more amazing than you really are. Embrace Memento FM today. Ben says, India have toured South Africa twice in the last few years. For a nation to play more tests, make more money from tests is, is the best way to do all they can to invite IPL ownership into their domestic league. Oh no, I don't think those two things are related at all. Um, I'd be very, very surprised if that was the case. Um, so, no, I don't think it's the SA20 League that, is, that has done that. Um, I mean, it can be a bit random um, depending on who you suck up to and who's available at the right time and everything else. Like, I don't think there's any one way to ensure that India play you other than the fact of being Australia or England helps because they can make, prop, you know, in India, they can make more money when you two are over there. Uh, ben says, there must be more optimal material to try to cricket ball than White's material. Uh, well not all whites are the same anyway <laughs> why don't teams play a scientist to find out what it is uh diet white and then put a patch on the sleeve and the thigh of their team's whites well England did this England had one of those oh what's about a decade ago um I think they're the only team that I'm aware of although I think there has been some tests with different kinds of material in in cricket shirts and everything else um to be able to do it I don't know if a scientist was involved or just players um doing it themselves uh but yeah England used to have a patch on their trousers um uh, to to shine the ball it seems to have gone away i would say that perhaps it didn't work uh, and i don't know how much testing went into it beforehand Williams says if if every country had to pick a test eleven for players that don't feature in their premier white ball tournament a la south africa who would have the strongest team uh <laughs> you could argue it would be australia because the vast majority of their players don't play any big bash um it's a really hard one to answer because you, you're asking me, William, to try and factor in all the different 11ths of, of 12 different teams off the top of my head. Um, my guess is it would be the team with the strongest red ball bowling that doesn't play white ball cricket. So if for whatever reason you had two or three gun quicks and a, and a, and a really good spinner... Who didn't play in your major competition? Then that would be the that would be the team that would have the most chance of winning. Because usually when you get to second and th- like even have a look at you know um, you know the Australia A back in the day, you know they started they had rifle and Merv and then there was a bit of a drop off uh, with the bowlers, um, and that's generally the problem, right? Is finding you, it's hard enough to find five decent bowlers or seven decent bowlers at any one time when you have your A team. Uh, are available then you, you're trying to find two lots of bowlers and then in this case you're talking about perhaps your 25th best bowler right like it m- might be a situation like that so whoever has the best bowlers would be the uh, that would be the case it might be england just because they have more first class cricketers uh, it might be australia depending on how you count um being available uh for for that squad um most of india's best players are probably in the ipr one way or another now most of pakistan's best players like so most of the best players in the world would be available. Uh, William says, what's the best cricketing moment you have missed while having a dump? So there's a, there's an old episode of Aaron Sorkin's TV show. Um God, what was it called sports night. And there's a whole thing about some fantastic play happening in baseball and the uh, writer um, missing it because uh, he's in the toilet. Um, I couldn't even tell you in cricket. So so I always thought that was a really interesting one because, you know, baseball obviously goes for three or four hours. But in cricket, you are there for like seven or eight hours. Chances are you're going to go to the toilet during the play. And I've probably done it so many times and missed so many things. I can't think of anything consequential I've missed, but I'm sure I have. I'm sure I've missed a great catch or a great delivery or, um, you know, uh, an over um, at, at certain times. But, like, it, I, it's, you know, in cricket it is – you know, an average day for most cricket journalists, broadcasters is probably what ten hours, maybe eleven hours in some cases. Um, you got to go and you got to go, right? And and also, depending on the ground and everything else, sometimes it's not going at the drinks break or going at the change of innings. Sometimes the toilets are full and, and everything else. Um, <laughs> all these things happen. I remember the Wacker used to have like one toilet right so there's no way you couldn't miss cricket uh, the at um at the wacker um and there's a couple of other grounds with you know really really small toilets so the oval famously has two cubicles um so if you get one person who hasn't been eating their muesli um uh you know there's a line right and if you want to go with the fans you've got you know in most countries in, the, in most sporting stadiums in the world you've got piss all over the floor uh you got you know in the western stadiums you've got drunks uh in In some of the stadiums, there's no toilet paper by the time you go in and everything else, as we all know as cricket fans um so you kind of have to wait for the staff ones, so yeah, I'm sure I've missed stuff win, but yeah i don't I don't keep a log, so to speak. Ian says h S Patel's name popping up in the cricket spinners episode uh I uh, obviously brings up the memory of his 10 for that you commentated on. I think Muku has accidentally cut off the end of your question here, Ian, so let me just find it on my phone uh new zealand went on to lose that game after his heroics tempers are obviously nearly as rare as hen's teeth but what are the most noticeable bowling achievements in losing causes you can think of i always remember there was a really good um spell that ryan harris bowled in a game um that that came in a that came in a losing uh, a losing performance i think it was up in durham um, I think he went with short pitch bowling and we hadn't really seen him do that much in, in test cricket by that stage. Cause you know, there wasn't really a lot left, um, <laughs> a lot left of him uh, by that point. So, I mean, that is certainly one that I remember as um, uh, 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 just off the top of my head. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, um, anything else dramatic I can think of. I, I, Ajaz Patel has, I know he has the most wickets ever in a losing cause um do you know what there's a there's a test match where Merv Hughes gets a hat trick at the Wacker and I reckon he also took a 10 wicket haul. and I'm pretty sure Australia lost in that um those are the ones off the top of my head um oh Shane Warne took a 10 wicket haul as well um in Sydney I suppose Jason Crazier's one against India uh is another one that comes to mind um and if I'm not mistaken I reckon I covered Chris Works taking a ten wicket haul and losing. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any others. Uh, there's probably some good single innings ones, right? Where, where a te- you know where a player has gone absolutely ballistic in one innings, um, and then but you know for whatever reason still gone on to lose uh, the game. I'm trying to think. Wait, let me. I might be able to bring that up actually. I had something. Similar. Uh, yeah, the capital Dev one. That was the one that I was thinking of. So Kapil Dev takes a nine for, um, and loses at that test match. Um, certainly, I certainly won. And then, um, Nathan Lyon, I think took an eight for, um, I was at that test match in the first innings, took an eight for in the first innings. Australia so went on to lose that one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not that common really. Uh, as I said, AJ Patel has the most wickets ever in a loss, uh, which is 14 and there aren't really all that many 10 wicket hauls that have come in losses, um, Because usually they're so important. Oh, there's the full version of Ian's question. Uh, Satchmo says, does Australia's win-loss record under Cummins exaggerate how good they've really been, given that they have had um, more than a few indifferent sessions in that time? They have arguably um, beaten other teams of similar strengths in the past whose win-loss is inferior. Does Australia's win-loss record under Cummins exaggerate how good they've really been? Um, I don't know how to answer this. One thing I would say is that I've never seen a team that doesn't have indifferent sessions. And I know Australia got obsessed by this. You can actually see it in the Justin Langer documentary. There's the weirdest thing where at one stage their analyst says something along the lines of, oh, you know, we've got to improve in the middle of session. And I was thinking, well, okay, everyone does. Like the middle session is usually a bit of a shit show, especially for bowling. And I was assuming he was talking about bowling at that stage. And um, the ball doesn't do as much, right? Um, You know, if the sun is out in most parts of the country, it's not going to, you know, it's going to tire your bowlers quicker. Um, uh, We generally don't see movement for whatever reason at that stage, Um, whether it's just because it's drier in the middle of the day than it is at the morning and the evenings. I don't know, but all these sorts of things. Um, uh, So I don't know how to answer that, Satchmo. I mean, uh, I I think they're a pretty good team they've been a pretty good test team and i'm assuming you're talking about a test team here uh, over a four year period um and they'll they continue to be that i i don't see uh well i mean sorry they've continued to be that it might change uh, now but if you've got a spinner who is pretty consistent and three seam bowlers who are uh, you know obviously top class bowlers with you know Scott Boland on the in the wings and that and that sort of thing. You're gonna and and now with bowling all rounders, well batting all rounders who can who can chip in as well. Um, and someone like Travis Head, like you're going to be a good team. I, I, I just don't know how to answer a question like that because the West Indies had it in different sessions, and the great Australian cricket team had it in different sessions. So I don't know how. I, don't, I really don't know how uh, to do that. Uh, to talk about that. Will says, do you think people overrate the prestige of India in the eyes of domestic fans of other nations? I know the Indian television market makes hosting India incredibly lucrative, but I don't feel like they attract the same type of buzz that say England touring tends to generate due to a large number of away fans that follow them, and the fact that everyone grew up hating um, England. Uh, I don't know why you think that that matters, Will, because... The, your other comment makes the most sense i know that the indian television market makes hosting india incredibly lucrative so what should should you have slightly more um excited fan base but make less money that's essentially what you're saying right um i think i think india is sort of they're not quite in that australia or england bracket at the moment of um excitement for you know home fans um but they do also bring a lot of Indians to the games. I know what, what you're saying is they don't bring a lot of touring Indians, right? Which is true. It's starting to happen with India. We are certainly starting to see, um, you know, middle-class Indians traveling around with the team a little bit more. But not the way that the Army has been doing it for the last 40 years, right? Not 30 years. Uh, and Australia has tour groups. But, again, outside of the ashes, they're not particularly big, Um but what you do see with India is, no matter where you turn up, there are Indians because there are so many Indians in the world, and uh, you know NRI Indians uh, around places that they do turn up, and so you generally get better, better crowds when India plays. Some, anyway, um, but what you don't get is the big pack of them, the way that you're describing, uh, which is the way the England, um, uh, the England fans generally go on tours, whereas the Indian fans. If, if they travel somewhere, generally just do it themselves. So it is a, a completely different uh, setup. But yeah, it just doesn't matter. Like what? Okay, so there's no cricket board on earth that would choose to play England over India. There are tourism boards who would choose to play England over India, but no cricket board because you're just going to make more money. So I don't really, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose you're right, but I don't really know what the point of it is. <laughs> like, quite clearly, you would pick the thing that is going to make you more money. That is pretty much how capitalism works, if I'm not mistaken. Vivek says, predictions on whether the baseball approach, looking to put pressure on the bowling team, shuffling within the crease, would fare better against Ashwin, Jadeja, and Akshar than the Aussie batters grinding it out approach last year. Um, well, you can't really shuffle around the crease to Akshar, Ashwin and Jadeja, because you'd be stumped, right? Uh, look, I think there will be times when the Indian bowlers will have pressure put back on them, but because they are so senior... I just find it hard to believe that it's ever going to, I don't know, break them the wrong way, but you know what I mean? It, maybe if we see slightly flatter pitches, baseball could come back into it. But I think some of the wickets we've seen in India, I just don't know how that's possible uh, to be able to do that. We did see a test where Zach Crawley made some runs against India in India, where I suppose you could see that an England might point towards that as something that they should do, but you can't really sweep Akshar Patel, right? Um, you can't really come down the wicket to Jadeja and Ashwin's Ashwin. I'm not sure what you can do to make those three feel uncomfortable consistently. Um, Boomer is fit as well. Uh, you know you can move around a little bit and, and bother him, but he's probably still going to have a reverse spell one day that is going to cause you problems. Um, so yeah, I, I I I don't I'm fascinated to see how it will work. Um, it worked weirdly. It's been, it's been inconsistent for a little while, right? Like, I think we've forgotten the fact that, you know, they didn't win that New Zealand series. They didn't win the Ashes. Um, It's not as, it's not as dominant as it looked to begin with. Teams are starting to work it out a little bit more and understand it. Um, And you, you know, Australia came up with some good theories against it and some bad theories against it. Um, But I, I think that really you're looking at playing cricket to the extreme and those Indian wickets are kind of already at the extreme. Nabil says you spoke previously about how the Invincibles wouldn't stand a chance today, uh, implying a great deal of innovation has occurred. Who do you think has had a greater impact, players or organisers? Updating laws, implementing limited, uh, o, uh, implementing um, ODIs, etc. And based on that, how good would Brabham be today? Well, Nabil, I've done a video on that. Look, he definitely wouldn't average ninety one point nine four. He would struggle with the pace of the bowlers. He would struggle with the bounce of the bowlers. There weren't six foot eight guys bowling at 90 miles an hour or even 85 miles an hour when Don Bradman played. Part of that is also the back foot no ball law. So when you talk about whether it's the players or the organizers, that's an organizing thing. ODI cricket has obviously ch- changed things, but the world has changed, right? That professionalism. Bradman was, you know, um, uh, quite often playing against amateurs, uh, almost exclusively against amateurs. Um, you know, and also played some of them after world, world Wars. And, you know, South Africa didn't have any money. New Zealand didn't have any money. Like, they were, they were well, not that he, Bradman played against New Zealand, but, you know, India didn't have any money. So it was very hard for those cricketers to develop the way they have. Um, but physically, if, if you if you took a 1948 batter of any any of the, the great batters and put them in today, how would they face Kyle Jameson, right? How would they face Marco Janssen? These are just things they never had to worry about right? There weren't that many tall bowlers. They didn't bowl at this pace. They weren't left arm bowlers, um, at that pace or that height either. Right. Um, you know, there was one good left arm bowler in the early part of cricket and he's got a bowling average of 20, right? Um, Alan Davidson. Now there's hundreds of them. You would have to work all that out. So if you hadn't, um, done that, so, uh, you know, the organizers have played a small part, but Society's probably played the largest part, right? Like, things just keep going forward um, over and over again, and, and you know, things have developed. Virat Kohli exists because Bradman existed, right? Um, Kevin Peterson existed because Trumper existed. That doesn't mean that you could put Trumper in the modern game, right? And all of these guys bat because of W.G. Grace, right? He invented the template of modern batting, right? But he'd be rubbish if he played today. And I, th- and I think that, that that's fine because that's what sport is supposed to be, right? Um, things move on. The bowlers have got faster. We have um, the spinners have got faster. There are more revolutions put on the ball. People hit the ball harder. People run between the quick- wicket more. There's better fielding. You know, all these sorts of things. Uh, you know, cricket has changed massively. Um, and so, yeah, the old cricketers would struggle. Doesn't mean that they're not great because they get only – they can't do the things that haven't occurred yet, right? So, you know, in Bradman's case, he's playing against people bowling with the back foot no ball law. So generally he had to face swing a lot more and a lower arm action, right? So how would you do someone who is not collapsing at the crease to try and get a low arm action to swing the ball around corners and now has to face, you know, Joel Garner or, you know, Kyle Jameson or, um, you know, any of the, you know, uh, Ollie Robinson, these guys with these huge release points that just have never existed before, right? And, And if they did, it was one or two. We go on and on about Joel Garner being massively tall. There's like 30 bowlers of his height now. Sandeep says, how was your Christmas break? What did you do? Um, what did I do? I didn't really have a Christmas break, Sandeep. Um, you know, I, I suppose the break I had was how short the two test matches were. Um, India, South Africa, you know, I booked myself in for 10 days of work and I did not have to work for 10 days. Uh, so, yep, uh, uh, Christmas, I, uh, I had sort of two Christmas dinners. We have uh, one big one with uh, my wife's extended family and then we had one at home. They were both very, very good. Um, I'm trying to think if I got anything crickety for Christmas that anyone would care about. Um, I can't even remember what I got. I can't remember. Maybe I did. I, 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 those sorts of things do tend to happen. Um, I got a really nice new pair of um, Nike SBs, which I was happy about. Um, uh, but, you know, look, it is, you know, I'm not a Christian, so um, Christmas is a thing that happens to me rather than me being involved with. Um, but I love my family and enjoy seeing my family, so that's always a good thing. David says, so I've been wondering what it means that there are so many leagues popping up around the world. Is it just a bubble that will burst? Are these leagues really profitable? For example, I heard tickets to the SA20 were crazy cheap. Yeah, most of these leagues, are don't make a profit, David. Um, you know, the Big Bash makes a slight profit. I think the 100 is still losing money. CPL is obviously being run by an independent company, so they're treading water. Um, but, you know, it's not massively profitable. Uh, PSL hasn't probably maximized the money it could make. The BPL He's not making money um what they are what a lot of them are doing is not making massive losses or making slight uh wins and it's also a lot more consistent than the money they were making before but no no one's getting rich about it i've talked about it before it doesn't really make sense um these smaller leagues that pop up they just don't make any money and then disappear Uh, i wonder how many of them are about dark money um and you know illegal stuff and and all sorts of things because it doesn't make sense that a lot of these leagues exist. No one seems to watch any of them. I think the most successful T uh, Twenty leagues in the last couple of years have been the veterans leagues. Um, uh, they seem to make a little bit of money and um, you know, guaranteed viewers in India in a way that most of these other leagues don't. And most of these other leagues are, as you said, you know, ticket prices. I mean, I don't think ticket prices matter that much for the SA Twenty, just because ticket prices to South games are pretty cheap anyway. But it really is about, you know, how you can maximize your revenue uh, via TV and streaming and, and sponsorship and everything else. And I, I'd i be surprised if any league outside the IPL is making, and maybe one of those, uh, one or two, I don't know if it's road safety or the other one, but I know one of them did okay, um, is making serious money. I would say that almost every other league in the world is probably not making serious money um, and is probably running hand to mouth um, at best. hand to mouth with a very small profit and maybe a consistent profit. Um, And a lot of them are soaking up costs because they think eventually one day they will be profitable um, and cricket boards are taking risks on them. But no, there's way too many leagues. A whole bunch of them should be amalgamated. I've said this before. Um, Stupid idea. Everyone thought it it was their way of printing money. And I've seen no money printed. Christopher says, do you believe there is anything that the average fan could do to save Test cricket? So I get asked this a lot obviously, after making my film. I mean, the simplest thing is watching it, right? Um, The more people who watch it, the better. Uh, The more people who tweet about it, you know, the more people who are engaged with it. uh, Certainly, you know, buy tickets to it. It certainly helps. What cricket really needs is a global fan-led collective. Um, Probably three different ones, you could argue, for each different format. Um, But we don't even have a global union, Uh, you know, there's quite a few, uh, cricket nations who are not involved in different union, uh, not involved in the main cricket union. Um, so if there was a really strong global fan body, uh, that could help, but that's not really the average fan, is it really? All the average fan can do is keep watching it. Um, I mean, test cricket exists because we're watching it, right? Even ODI cricket, which at the moment is in the most danger of disappearing exists because we're watching it right if if we get annoyed at things and we turn off the tv that is when it will disappear and that's the truth right um there is no other there for an average fan there is no other thing that is what needs to happen um all right uh, that is the end of the um chats from patreon some really good questions in there i will have a quick break here And then after the break, uh, we will come back and we will do, uh, and I'll see if there's anything in the chat. I'm Jared Kimber, and this is Wagon Wheel. Remember that cricket is a funny game. 100 years before we protected our heads, players looked after their groins. So don't be as stupid as old cricketers and protect your computer today. NordVPN is the protection I use when facing cyber shortballs or when rights issues try to dismiss me. NordVPN will help you get through the straight bat of any geo blocks, so you can watch all the cricket you want. If you need your pitch changed, well, NordVPN can doctor any surface to a new location so that your IP address is set up for you to win. Want to buy an associate cricket shirt from a place that won't ship to your country? Select NordVPN. Want to watch a game on a free stream in another hemisphere? NordVPN. Or if you just want to watch a clip on social media that a cricket board won't allow you to, promote NordVPN to pinch it for you. So if you need a VPN, go Nord. Use nordvpn.com forward slash Kimber to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four additional months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. The link is in the show notes. Protect your computer like a cricketer protects its nether region with NordVPN today. Okay. Right. I don't have many. Time. I've got no super chats, but I've got a couple of quick. i have just. Someone keeps calling me. So I might have to leave very, very quickly. Uh, but one second. I've just realized I've left a previous question. Uh, there's a couple of interesting ones here. Ben says uh, Do bowlers have a smaller margin for error against taller or shorter batters? Yeah, I think what it does is you can't bowl your normal length. Right. And we are talking about freakishly tall and freakishly small players. Cause you know, most players are, there's no like average, well, there is an average height, but you know what I mean? That, you know, it has to be someone who's quite extreme, but if you do have a player who is five foot two or five foot three, or you have a batter in six foot four, you know, has a long stride or something, uh, you know, there will be certainly in those sorts of situations, uh, yeah, you struggle with your length a little bit more. Um, I think that's absolutely fine, uh, uh, like a normal thing. And if you've ever bowled to those sorts of players, especially more as a seam bowler, I think you'll understand what I mean. But if, if you're a spinner and you bowl to a very tall player, you realize that you really have to quite quickly adjust your length. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. I don't know if it's a smaller margin for error. I just think you need to change what you are doing. Arco says, "I heard Wazim and Waqar say they used to bowl 150 regularly. Was that actually true, or is the past fast bowlers being legendary fast is another myth?" Common sense says we have better athletes now. Yeah, we have better athletes now. Look, I I don't want to say that they, these two guys never bowled 150. I think Waqar definitely did, and I think Wazim certainly bowled around that speed on occasion as well. Regularly, I find that hard to believe. Um, and I watched them, and I watched them both in their peaks, um, but. There, are, there is a reason why Wakao Yunus was so good, and I think a big part of that was his extra speed. Um, and so I do think he was probably one of the faster bowls in the world um, for a long period of time, and he probably was over 90 miles an hour regularly. But he was probably, you know, when you look at the speed guns, when the speed guns turned up, they were also under 90 miles an hour a lot, right? And in some cases, quite significantly under 90 miles an hour. Um, and when Shoab turned up, he just looked a little bit quicker than either of those guys had right and we know that he was 150 regularly so could they touch it yes I, mean, I think michael holding could bowl very fast but i also think now there are probably 50 bowlers in the world at the moment who could bowl at his speed that doesn't mean and when old old players hear this they get really angry and they're like oh you say michael holding was fast i'm like no if michael holding was in the top 5 fastest in the world at that time he was fast right fred spothers was fast right tom richardson was fast but I could face both of those guys in my backyard now, right? <laughs> Off their full runs, on a dodgy surface, right? What has changed is that there are more bowlers and more consistency, and more professionalism. I, I think there's been tests that say that Jesse Owens and I can't remember who it was, but one of the modern sprinters, might, might've been um, Usain Bolt, were not actually that much different in speed, but what a different is the quality of the tracks, the quality of the shoes um, and everything else is what it had changed a little bit, right? Um those are the things that had changed, that had made the bigger difference rather than anything else. Exactly the same um, now. It makes more sense to bowl fast now than it did in previous generations. In previous generations, you got more assistance off the pitch, right? You, you didn't need to come in. We learn a lot about the science and the mechanics um, and, and dietary and everything else. So certainly uh, we have much more fast bowlers now. Darth Vader says, what is your take on, on Katikeya's insistence, the big, big Mac?" Me- a big match mentality um, is a concept. In is a concept. Uh, I'm assuming he would think that it is not a concept. Um, the best players perform the best because they are the best players. Are there certain players that are suited to certain times of a game, which make them look like they're better players? So, for instance, was Michael Bevan really a uh, a more clutch player than Ricky Ponte? Well, how could we tell that? Michael Bevan's position put him in a clutch situation. So enter the 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 big moment was, well, no, it's not. He just he, They've lost four wickets. He's come out to bat. He's going to be batting near the 50th over. So he's going to be involved with a lot of wins because he's an above average number six. The same as Emma Stoney, right? Well, how does that make Emma Stoney or Michael Bevan more clutch than an opener? right? And then the big game thing, well, if you're consistently better than everyone else in all the other games, you're going to be consistently better than other people in the big games. I do think there are certain skills, you know, if you look, you know, the two sports that I watch the most are cricket and basketball. There are certain skills in basketball, like the ability to be able to create your own shot at the end of a game, um, is a very handy skill to have when the defense is suddenly swarming. Right. And your ability to separate from the defense for a moment allows you to be more useful at the end of the game than someone else who needs um, the, the whole five plays to be moving correctly for them to be open in the corner. And that may not happen as well when the other team's, you know, madly defending. Um, so things like that really, really help, right? At, at, the, at, at the end of a game. If you're a bowler who has a very good slow ball and a very good um, Yorker, um, you're probably going to do pretty well in, in 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 games where you've got to bowl the last over, right? Um, you know, and you'll be seen as more of a clutch player, so or a big game player um, because of that. But we will have forgotten that the other player did really really well. Uh, maybe maybe you know finals or big games and everything else are um, uh, are played at a different tempo. What if that tempo helps you, right? What is it about Ben Stokes that is helped by the fact that he has, to, he has to bat in a different way, right? So we go, oh, it's a big game. Oh, look, he's, you know, he's the man, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, actually, there are technical reasons why Ben Stokes is really good at batting in those. And you can see them, right? The same as we saw with Aidan Markram the other day. What defines a big game, right? Sometimes a big game is looked at um, retrospectively because someone did a really good performance is, is the other thing. Um, there's no player who isn't above average consistently who i would say is a big match player like for instance kevin o'brien is the only player i can think of in cricket that would fit this kind of description but Ireland have actually had tons of big games where he hasn't stepped up but a couple of the ones that have been broadcast he has right maybe that's just dumb luck my guess is it probably is right and kevin o'brien is a player that in certain situations i think if I think what we're seeing of Kevin O'Brien is in certain situations when the team is falling apart around him, he concentrated harder. Whereas in those other con- times when he went out there, he was probably sent out there to be the biffer and probably batted in that way. And and maybe I didn't think about it as much. Then we see those games and they're broadcast, and so he has big game mentality. The best players are the best players in a small game or a big game. It's just nonsense, and they're individual players whose skills make them look like they are better and we get to see them in a very small sample size. My guess is any player in the world if you looked at whether they're a big game player or not what you're really saying is that they were very very good um uh, in the games that you saw, right? Um or in a, in a small handful of games and when you start to expand it out there's almost always a technical reason or a skill-based reason why players perform well. Um uh, there are some players who prefer to play on TV Right, you know, or in front of big crowds. And I think there is some scientific evidence to suggest that that is a thing. But again, that is more that it gets them focusing a little bit more. It's not that they're a a better personality than another player, right? And I think the minute we start talking about big match mentality, we're talking shit right? We're talking about small sample sizes and our memories over everything else. Anyway, that's it for me today. Thank you very much uh, to everyone for popping in. And I will see you all again uh, next time. I am Jared Kimber, and this was The Wagon Wheel. Thank you for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are also many other extras as well, including a Discord channel where you can chat to me directly. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. We are an independent podcast, so support us any way you can. Maybe give us a review, subscribe, or share on social media. All of these things help us. And when it comes to podcasts, word of mouth is always the best way of making it grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Baram Kazi and Estelle Vasudevan. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston, and each episode is produced by Ishit Kabirka at Sound Potion Studio. Mukunda Bandredi, or Moku, as most people will know, is the head of our YouTube channels, and he also helps out with so many other things like the podcast recordings. And there's so many other people we could thank here, but I just want to thank all the listeners and all the people who help behind the scenes that make this podcast work.